Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Have you have your Bibles? Go ahead and unmute. Thanks, Sam. If you have your Bibles, open them up to, I believe the Pew Bible is about page 739, Luke chapter 14. That's where we'll begin this morning. Luke chapter 14. There's some statements of Jesus in the Bible that I think if you've been in the church for a while at all, we become so accustomed to them that we kind of, I think they lose their force. They lose their meaning, their, the, the significance of them. Uh, many of them, when they were first heard by the people, would have made no sense at all. For example, in Luke 6, 35, Jesus says, Lend without expecting anything in return. Now, for us who have grown up in a Western Christian kind of environment or culture, uh, this has kind of become the way we've been taught and we've been raised. We should lend things out without expecting anything in return. But in Jesus' day, that statement makes no sense. In Jesus' day, the purpose for lending is so that they owe you. That's the whole idea. I mean, the disciples would be going, Jesus, why would I do that? It makes no sense. As we turn to Luke chapter 14, Jesus, it begins with Jesus on the Sabbath day at a banquet at a Pharisee's home. Verse 1, on a Sabbath, when Jesus went out to eat, in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being watched carefully. There in front of him was a man suffering from an abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent them away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. It's interesting because if you understand the cultural context of what's happening at these meals, it's all about honor and shame, as we'll discuss here in a few minutes. And the reality is, is that it's awfully surprising that, that this man was actually invited to the dinner. This man's not an honorable person. He's bloated and he's uh, uh, maybe some form of dropsy of, of some nature, a, a medical disease where uh, uh, he has uh, an excess of fluids in his body. Probably an indication of, of heart failure or kidney disease, etc. But the reality is, this man's not an honorable person. They probably have invited him to the dinner for one purpose, to see what Jesus is going to do. And if you were with us last week, you probably heard the greatest sermon you've ever heard. Um, maybe, maybe not. But uh, uh, on, on the Sabbath. And we talked about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus points out in the, in the healing of the Sabbath, he says, look, you guys pull out an ox if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath day. Is that not work? So what's the problem with me working also? Note carefully, Jesus' healing of people on the Sabbath is working. Jesus never denies that in healing somebody, he's actually working. Jesus' answer is, is that this healing is exactly what the Sabbath is for. The Sabbath is intended to bring healing to people. The purpose of the Sabbath, as we mentioned last week, was to protect the people from being exploited. The, the owners of the field want the laborers to work seven days a week, and God says that's not the way my economy is going to work. My economy is going to work this way. We're going to protect people. We're going to do justice. 
And those who are easily exploited are going to be protected. So it's a, a day for, for freedom, for liberation, for, for healing. And so he heals this man. Now verse 7 continues, and it says this. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked up the, the, the places of honor at the table, he told them a parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then you'll be humiliated. You'll have to take the least important place. But, verse 10 says, when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said this to the host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors, if you do, they will invite you back, and then you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, to understand what's going on here, there's two things, and in, 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 uh, we have to understand the two, two social considerations. Number one, a person's social status was based on how others perceived your relative honor. This is extremely important. We've mentioned it a few, for those of you who have been with us before. This is essential for understanding the biblical world. What people think of you is the driving motivation in society. And we kind of do this ourselves as well, right? You know, it takes us an hour to get prepared in the morning when we're going to go out. But when no one else is coming over, we don't... We don't we, you know, there's a sense where we're concerned, and there's a rightness to it as well. But in the first century Jewish world, what others thought of you was the driving social concern. The purpose was to gain honor at all costs. And if you can't gain honor, then you are at least to avoid shame. So when you sit down at a meal, the way it goes is you try to get the best seat possible without getting bumped to the end of the table. We do this in our own culture as well, by the way, right? The, you know, so when you go to someone's house for dinner, you don't sit at the head of the table, do you? We, we know that there's so, certain places that you sit and certain places that you don't sit. Right? And we seek out the best seats and things of that nature as well. The second thing that's important to understand is this idea of what's called reciprocity or giving back. And it's a system of gifts and obligations. In the first century Jewish world, no gift was ever free, period, never. Lend without expecting anything in return makes no sense in this world. Now, we do this on a, on a small scale ourselves also, right? If someone gives you a gift, you kind of remember what it was and the value of it, so that when their birthday or anniversary, you know, we kind of give back in kind. I don't want to give them a gift that's so expensive that they can't afford to give me, you know, I, I'll know their social economic status, and we give gifts accordingly. But we often expect things in back, things in return. Jesus is going to come along and say it this way, folks. The way my kingdom is going to work is going to be radically different. The first will be last, and the last will be first. So he tells the parable, verse 7. He says, look, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. 
Because someone more, more honorable might come and they might have been invited and then you and the host, the host will come to you and say, you know, give this person your seat and you're going to have to go to the least important place. Verse 10. When you're invited, he says, take the lowest place. That way when the host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is simply not the way the culture works. And Jesus' answer is, my kingdom doesn't work the way the culture works. In certain economies, the more hours and days of the week you work, the more money you make. In my kingdom, no, you work six days and that's it. You rest on the seventh. In many cultures, you plant all the seeds and, and, and grow all the acres of land you have so you can grow as many crops as you have and then you can sell all those crops and make a profit. But in my kingdom, Jesus says, you only work six out of sevenths of the land because even the land needs a Sabbath rest. And to grow crops on six-sevenths of the land is not to make as much money, but that's not the way it works in my kingdom. Jesus then turns to the host and he says, Look, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, I don't want you to invite your friends or your brothers or even your rich neighbors, because they're going to invite you back, and you'll be repaid. Instead, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you'll be blessed. So, to the guests, you're not to seek the best honor, the most honorable places. In fact, the, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. To the, to the host, uh, invite those who cannot repay you. Invite the ones who can't repay you. And then you'll be blessed in the end. Luke 14, verse 11, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Verse 15, he continues on. Uh, one of those at the table heard Jesus and said, uh, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a banquet and, inviting many, and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent to his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, uh, now, for everything is ready. Verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I've just bought, five, uh, I just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another one said, I bought five oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. So another one said, I just got married so I can't come. Verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you that not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, verse 15 is interesting. It's, you know, this guy says, hey, look, blessed is the one who will eat, eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. And what he probably means by that is, is blessed are the ones who are in. Not the outcasts. Blessed are the ones who are the true sons of Abraham. Blessed are the ones who are like me. Remember, there's, there's, a, there's a parable Jesus tells of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the, the Pharisee says, Dear God, I thank you I'm not like him. I'm in. So when the man says, Blessed are those who eat at the feast of Abraham, and his answer is, Blessed are the ones who are like me. And, and then Jesus, as only he can do, seems to tell a parable that he seems to have absolutely nothing to do with what the guy just said. Right? I mean, it always, when you read Jesus, he's like, 
Somebody will say something, and Jesus is like, hey, over here, you know, hey, Jesus, some, some Gentiles want to see you. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. You're like, what does that have to do with anything, Jesus? But it's, so Jesus goes on and he tells this parable again. He says, here, here's, here's reality. A certain man uh, uh, went out to have a banquet, and he invited many guests. Now imagine this. If you're going to have a banquet and you're going to invite a lot of guests, we do this in our culture as well, the first thing you're going to do is make sure everybody's got the day free on their calendar. Right? You know, if you invite eight families over for, a, for an event and then six of them say, oh, we can't make it that day, you're going to reschedule. So in an honor and shame culture, imagine how shameful it would be to have this lavish banquet and then no one shows. So there's no way that, this, that the guy who plans the banquet has not already invited them. He's already made sure you've got Saturday the 14th free on your calendar, right? Yep, no problem. Okay, here's the deal. In that world, you didn't know exactly how long it would take to prepare the food. So I'll send my servant and let, him, let you know when the food's ready. Just mark the day off. They've already agreed to come. They've already been invited and agreed to come, and now the servants are simply going to let them know when the food's ready. The servant comes and lets them, lets them know when the food's ready, and here's what happens. They all, like, began to make excuses. I just bought a field. I have to go see it. Like you wouldn't buy a field without looking at it in advance. Seriously. You're not going to go buy some property that you've never seen. I just bought five oxen. I need to go try them out. You're not going to buy five oxen unless you've already tried them out. The way it worked in that culture would be if anyone's going to sell some oxen, everybody knows in the town, the oxen will be sold this day. You go to the city, the marketplace, and the guy brings the oxen and he, and he shows everyone, these are good oxen that, that can work. Okay, I'll buy them. You've already tried them out. You've already seen them. What a lame excuse. Now the third guy seems like he's got a legit excuse. I just got married, so I can't come. Sounds legit, right? The reality is, you wouldn't have accepted the invitation to come to a banquet if you knew you were going to be married in the meantime and not able to come. Everyone's excuse is lame and weak. Notice, by the way, the third guest doesn't even say, please excuse me. He just simply says, I can't come. The first two guests, who appear to have the lamest excuses, say, excuse me. The third guy, I can't come, I just got married. What have they done? They've put possessions and family ahead of the kingdom of God. They put possessions and family ahead of the kingdom of God. So Jesus answers, you know what? I want you to go out to the highways and the byways and bring everybody in. The end result is this. Those who desired the best seats ended up without a seat. Those who desired the best seats ended up without a seat because they put family and possessions ahead of the kingdom of God. Verse 25, Jesus continues, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turned to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, 
Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began the bill but was unable to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile, it is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, we fall in the trap when we read Jesus, when we read the Bible, of course, because we often read it as though I'm on Jesus' side and he's telling them what's wrong with them. We, we, we don't read the Bible very often as though I'm that person who is making excuses not to come to the banquet. I'm clearly not that guy. I must be one from the highways and the byways. That was invited. But, but we're on the end. And then we come across this last part of Jesus and we're like, you know, that's a little bit, uh, a little bit harsh there, Jesus. I mean, don't you think you're going a little bit too far? In fact, you might actually hear common criticisms uh, of people who, who will claim the Bible has contradictions in it or mistakes in it. And, and they'll show this particular passage. The Bible has mistakes in it because Jesus said to love your neighbor and love everyone, but then he also said you had to hate your father and mother. See clearly a contradiction. And let's look at it in this way. There's two keys to discipleship in this passage. Number one, a person must come to Christ and hate their, and hate their family. A person must come to Christ and hate their family. Well, well what does this mean? How, how could Jesus tell us on one hand to, to love our neighbor and love our enemies and yet hate our family? And the answer is the word hate in the Jewish world is a figure of speech. It's a common figure of speech. If you've been in, in the church for a while, you may have heard, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. How could God hate Esau? The word hate means to love something so much, it's as though you hate the other. Jesus takes the very things he knows we love, mother and father, or brother and sister, or husband and wife, or our children, the things that we value the most. He knows we love them. And his answer is, your love for me must be so great, it's as though you hated those things. Or oh, you can't be my disciple. Matthew 10, verse 37 says it in a simpler, softer way. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So the example, mother, wife, children, own life, are things that we love the most. And Christ's answer is, we must place Jesus as our first priority. We must give up everything in order to be his disciple. The second element of discipleship in this passage is this. We must carry our own cross. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, we kind of soften this one a little bit as well. I mean, if if we really wanted to, I was thinking about this, but I, I decided not to do it, of putting up pictures of crucifixions and what it, what it looks like. And we would get the, under, the disgustingness of it, uh, the, the shamefulness of it, the brutality of it, the inhumanity of it. And we begin to go, that's what Jesus is asking us to do. To take up our cross and follow him. To go the way of death. To, to follow Jesus as though I have been condemned to death. My own life is no longer there. I am now solely focused on following Jesus. And Jesus is like, 
He's not saying, hey, look, these are good things I actually recommend you do. He's saying, if you don't do these things, you can't be my disciple. And what he's really ultimately saying, by the way, is it's either you or me. Which one? It's either I surrender all or I surrender nothing. There's no middle ground with Jesus. Discipleship then can be defined as recognizing that it's all about Jesus. Discipleship means that one must first recognize that it's all about Jesus. But then the reality, of course, is that following Jesus is going to cost us something. Verse 33-35 again, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything we have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pots thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So the question is, what does this mean to count the cost? A king is not going to go out to battle if he counts his army and realizes it's not as big or as good as theirs, not a good battle to fight. I think I'll back off on this one. Jesus' answer is this. Count the cost. You see, the story starts off in chapter 14 with large crowds following Jesus. But we know what's going to happen to those large crowds by the time he gets to Jerusalem. The large crowds aren't carrying the, counting the cost. Uh, they're thinking that Jesus, uh, it's not a big deal, it's, it's okay, I'm fine. Now, there's a way to read Jesus' statement, by the way, and that is how to get to the head of the table. All right, if I start at the head of the table and someone more important comes in, they're going to boot me to the back of the table. So Jesus is giving you the secret on how to get to the head of the table. Start at the back end and let the, the host, right? And the, and the reality is, hey, that's pretty smart, Jesus. Thank you. But if we think that that's what Jesus means, that Jesus is telling us the best way to get the best seat is to actually take the lowest seat, knowing full well that your goal actually is to get the best seat. If that's what we're thinking, the focus is still self. The focus is still me trying to get the best seat. Jesus' answer is no. If you humble yourself and deny yourself, I'll exalt you. But at my kingdom and in my feast. Being humble doesn't mean putting ourselves down. Being humble means no longer as the center of the world, me. Philippians 2, Paul says that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That we should consider others better than ourselves. That we should look to the interests of others and not our own interests. And then follow the way of Jesus, who did not look to his own interests, because the cross was not in his own interests. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death. So the question for us this morning is, what have we counted as more significant than Jesus? What am I holding on to? What's my excuse as to why I won't attend the banquet? <laughs> I didn't realize that there was a game on that day. I mean, I was good for the banquet. God bless you. I was good for the banquet, but you know, the game, I'll, I'll come later. It was a DVR in heaven. Yeah, there you go. Um, I, I was good to go to the banquet, but I didn't know that you wanted my house. 
I didn't know you wanted my pride. I, I didn't know you wanted me to take that job. I, I, I like this one better. I'm more honored. I didn't know it would sacrifice my family. I didn't know it would come at that expense. What does it mean to count the cost? And what costs have we not really fully surrendered at all? Now, now let me, let's be honest here, right? See, there's this, there's this tension in the Christian life that's always present. And that tension in the Christian life is, I'm still me. I still have this flesh that has desires and temptations and lusts. And the center of the flesh that I still possess is me. And we're never really going to get rid of that until the resurrection. And in coming to Christ, he asks us to surrender that and to follow him. And there's this tension between those two for the rest of our Christian walk. And so we all sit here today going, you know what, I've got a lot of excuses as to why I'm not going to the banquet. And we live in this moment of tension. But here's the point. Don't be content with those excuses. Instead, let's come before the throne of God of mercy and ask that by His power and by His grace that we can do better every day at denying ourselves and taking up our crosses and following Him. Lord, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the cross. Because you've done for us what we can't do for ourselves. If we were left unto ourselves, we would never make it to the banquet. Because the game's on. Because there's something with the family. I've got to tend to something at work. I need some rest. All of our excuses. But we thank you that you didn't make excuses and seek after your own interests, but you laid down your life for us. As we follow the Gospel of Luke and learn more and more about who this man is, and now we realize that you're going to Jerusalem to die, and that you've called us to follow you to Jerusalem. So Lord, help us. Help us not to seek the places of honor and the places of privilege. Not to hang out only with those who bring us honor and those who bring us privilege. But to recognize that every person is made in your image. And that you've called us to invite them to the banquet. Not to sit and rejoice that we're at the table, but to go out in the highways and the byways and bring them all in. And so we pray, Lord, that you would send us, that you'd equip us and strengthen us and encourage us. We thank you for this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.